Good morning. My name is Brandon Shields, and I serve as the lead pastor here at Soma Midtown. So glad to have you with us for the teaching portion of our Sunday gathering today. Uh, For the last several weeks, we've started a new series called God's Empowering Presence, and we're looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of His people. And we talked about who the Spirit was for the last several weeks, and today we're going to kind of change gears and begin to look at um, what the Spirit does in our lives and what life in the Spirit actually looks like on the ground. Now, many, many people have said, I, I want to get into life in the Spirit. What does that actually look like? And so we're going to be talking about for the next several weeks what it looks like to walk in the Spirit, to live by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. And I want to start this week by looking at how the Spirit specifically transforms our identity. I was reading in the New York Times an op-ed this week by a 17-year-old girl named Talie Rosen. And her article was entitled, There's No Vaccine for Despair. And it was a really just heart-wrenching description and reflection on how COVID-19 has amplified the growing mental health crisis amongst her peer group of teenagers. And there's a quote that really stuck out to me that I think applies to people of all ages. She says this towards the end of the article, there's no antibody test for sadness or fear or dark thoughts. Being shut in has a unique way of bringing them out, but being shut in with family can also be a chance for honest conversation. I suspect that for all of us, uh, being shut up in our homes for the last several months has caused us to confront some hard truths about ourselves and about God that maybe we've kept bottled up in the busyness of a pre-pandemic world. Now, all that stuff's just kind of coming to the surface, as she says. And I wonder, as you're spending time thinking about and reflecting on yourself, and maybe thinking about, if you're a Christian, thinking about God, and maybe even thinking about God thinking about you, what you imagine God to be thinking about you right now. A lot of us would say the image of God that comes to mind when we think of God thinking of us is one of disappointment. As this pandemic lingers on, I hear a lot of people, and I feel this myself, just beginning to feel a sense of disappointment, even in themselves, and feeling a little bit of a sense of failure, of not being able to live up to their own standards for themselves. And we can project this onto God, and we feel like failures in our homes, right? Like our kids are running around, and it's crazy. We feel like failures in our jobs. We're not as productive as we used to be. We can't perform at peak level like we used to be able to. We feel like a failure with our bodies. We thought we were going to have all of this time, and we find ourselves busier and less motivated to get out and exercise and do the things we, we know we should do uh, anyways. And, and maybe we feel like a failure in our spirituality. We've lost the momentum that we had early on to pray, to connect with other people in, in our missional communities, or to worship or to serve. And we have this heightened sense of God's disappointment. I, I want to take us back to... Uh, something that we talked about, a story that we looked at a couple of weeks ago uh, in the life of Jesus, because I think Jesus has something to say to us about how God actually looks at us and how he wants to interact with us and how that has the potential to transform our identity, our sense of self, how we see that I within us. I want to take you back to the story, um, the baptism of Jesus found in Mark chapter one. It's a really short little story in Mark. Mark likes to give us just the highlights, the shortest of all the gospels, Um, Mark chapter 1, verse 9, he writes this about the baptism of Jesus. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open 
and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now the context here of this story, Jesus is coming down to the river Jordan to be baptized by his cousin, John. And we don't know exactly the extent to which Jesus understood at this point in his life. This is Jesus as an adult. We don't know much about his childhood and exactly how much he understood about his identity as the Messiah. There seems to be this emerging sense of understanding. As he talks about in the temple, I need to be about my father's business. But what all scholars acknowledge is that this baptism is the key event where Jesus' identity and calling are publicly celebrated and personally internalized in the heart and the soul of Jesus. Notice here there's all kinds of allusions to the Old Testament. We see the sky is, is opened up. The heavens are being literally, the word is torn open. This is a, this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 63, verse 15, when, when Isaiah says, God, would you tear open the heavens and come down? It's this plea for the power and the presence of God to come down and to save. And we see literally Jesus is the one for whom the skies are rent in two. They're opened up. And this voice from the Father speaks out over Jesus. And apparently, according to Matthew, everyone can hear this voice. And he says these words that I think all of us long to hear. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my priceless, special, unique son in whom I take delight. Now, that that word son is, is so important in the Bible. He's not just talking about his relationship to Jesus here. He is the Father and Jesus is the Son, although that's certainly implied. The the idea of the Son of God, the Son of the Father, sonship, is a word that's used throughout the Bible to refer to the identity and the calling of Israel, like you see that in Exodus chapter 19, um, as well as the anointed servant Messiah. If you go to Psalm chapter 2 or throughout Isaiah, this is a reference to the Son of God who would who would come as the spirit-anointed servant Messiah, and he would bring about the reign and the rule of God on the earth. What's really interesting is that only twice in the Gospels does God the Father speak directly from heaven, and in both cases, he says these same words, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, both here and then later on in the transfiguration up on the mountain, he says this same thing. What I want us to see here uh, that's important in terms of identity is that Jesus' identity, his sense of who he was, and then his calling in the world came from heaven, not from earth. Now, I want you to notice how God communicates his delight and his love for the Son, for Jesus. The way that he does that is through the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit here is pictured as a dove. This is a reference back to Genesis chapter 1. The Spirit is hovering over the waters in creation, bringing life and order out of chaos. And in the same way, the Spirit of God is hovering over Jesus, bringing about new life and new creation and redemption. And specifically here, he is communicating to Jesus. He's kind of the medium through which God the Father communicates to Jesus that he loves him, that he finds delight in him. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said that the Spirit is the love gift of God the Father to God the Son. And so Jesus becomes here a kind of prototype for how God communicates his love to 
all, to all of his people. And I want you to notice, I want you to see here, this love is poured out before any performance on behalf of Jesus, the very beginning of his public ministry, before he's done one thing. He's not accomplished one thing yet. Before his first sermon, before his first public ministry appearance, before his first healing, before his first deliverance, or any of his other miracles. Matter of fact, the rest of Jesus' ministry, his vocation, his calling, is lived from and sustained by this deep sense of identity of being God's beloved son. What I want us to learn from this in terms of identity and how identity formation works for the followers of Jesus is that Jesus finds his identity in the voice of the Father from the heaven through the power of the Spirit, and he refuses to root his identity in other competing earthly voices. He he refuses, we see later on um, in the temptation in the wilderness, to uh, even trust his own power or performance. That's the temptation of Satan in the wilderness is you are the son of God. You can do whatever you want. And Jesus refuses to find his identity even in his gifts and his power as the divine one. He refuses to root his identity in the opinion of the crowds. He says, I don't trust myself to the crowds. I don't care what people think about me. He refuses to root his identity even in powerful political leaders. Later on, we see in the last week of his life. And so it begs the question for us, where do we get our identity from? Where do we find our identity? Where do you find your identity? Does your identity come from heaven? Or does it come from those competing voices on the earth? And there's all kinds of ways that we can seek to find our identity in earthly things. There's different sources of earthly identities, different uh, identities that we like to try on from the earth instead of getting our identity from the heavens. I think of just a couple that are common to everyone. For some of us, maybe we look to find our identity in our performance. What I mean by that is, um, I am what I achieve, right? I am what I do. We get that question when you interact with somebody for the first time, you meet somebody out in public, that question that some of us hate, uh, what do you do, right? And then we begin to list off our resume. We begin to list off things that we'd find on our LinkedIn profile. Well, I do this, or I've accomplished this, right? I am what I do. I am what I've achieved. I am what I've succeeded in. And it's easy for us to, for that to become an identity statement. More than what we do, it's who we are. For others of us, we find maybe our identity in our possessions, right? I am what I have. We live in a, in a cultural moment that values acquisition, right? And it's all about competing to acquire the latest and greatest things. So things like clothing, right, or what house you live in, or what street you live north or south or east or west of, what coffee shop you go to, what kind of vehicle you drive, or maybe you find your identity in the fact that you don't own a vehicle, and you take the bus, or you take a bike somewhere. Like, these all can become identity statements for us. We can find our identity in our possessions. For others of us, maybe it's a persona, right? Like, I am what others need me to be. I am what others think of me. I mean, think about the pressure when you go out in public, when we're not under a stay-at-home order, when you're out at a party, or maybe just showing up on a Zoom call even right now, and that pressure you feel to be something, to be cool, to be not cool, to be that kind of person, this pressure that we have to project an image of ourselves that's acceptable to other people. We do this all the time with Instagram and social media. We like to kind of curate an image, then present that image out to the world, even though, by and large, it's not actually who we are, but it's who we want others to see us to be. It's an identity statement. 
Others of us can find our identity in pleasure, right? Like, I am what I desire. I am my sexuality. I am my imagination. Maybe for others of us, we find that in our pain even. We can find our identity in our traumas, in our, our sin and our suffering. I am my wounds. I am this bad thing that happened to me, and we, we kind of make an identity out of that. My point is, at the core, all of these different identities are ways that we derive a sense of who we are from the earth rather than from heaven, and are there ways that, honestly, we, we learn to cope with these voices inside of us and outside of us that tell us that we're not enough. I mean, that's the baseline thing that we're dealing with as human beings. We feel like we're unworthy. We feel like we're a nobody. We feel like we're unlovable, that we're broken, that we're damaged goods. And so we take these identities and we, we find refuge in them to try to prop up a sense of self. I mean, from our earliest days as children, right, we get hurt. We feel abandoned by our caregivers, those who are supposed to care for us. And to cope with that, we kind of try on these different masks, these identities, only to discover they don't actually bring about the happiness and the peace and the joy that we desire. And so the big problem here with these earthly identities is that ultimately they're unsatisfying and they're unstable, right? As these reality shifts, what, I, what, I, what others need me to be changes over time, right? My performance changes. It waxes and wanes over time. What I desire changes over time, right? Like what I possess changes. And as these things change and they shift over time, so does my sense of identity. And so does my sense of inner peace, right? We never arrive. We never feel adequate. There's never a time when we can say in any of these earthly identities, okay, I'm here, now I can relax, right? Like I possess enough, I've performed enough for a lifetime, I've had enough pleasurable experiences, right? Like that just doesn't happen. And it, and it leads to this deep sense of insecurity and restlessness, which then leads to exhaustion and burnout and like spiritual and emotional and mental and sometimes even physical death. So Jesus invites us like himself, to find our identity, to root our identity in the heavens, not on the earth. You see, the voice of the Father wasn't just for Jesus' benefit. Matthew tells us that everyone heard it, that it was for the benefit of his followers as well. Like Jesus, we must receive our identity from heaven, not from earth. Identity is not something that we can achieve. It is a gift that must be received. And just like with Jesus, the good news is that's exactly what the Spirit has come to do. The Spirit of God has come to fill us and to ground our identity in the knowledge that we are God's beloved children in whom he is delighted. I love this quote from author Brennan Manning. He says it like this, Jesus, the beloved son, does not hoard this experience for himself. He invites and calls us to share the same intimate and liberating relationship. This is the journey that we're on. This is the spiritual journey that we find ourselves on as followers of Jesus is, like Jesus, trying to live into, to become the beloved sons and daughters and children of God. So how does this work for us? What does it look like to live into, to have our identity rooted firmly and anchored firmly in the voice of our Heavenly Father by the power of the Spirit. If you have your Bible, you can turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. I just want to park here for a second, and then we'll end with another passage from the Apostle Paul. But I love this. One of my favorite passages in the Bible comes from Ephesians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul 
it's this amazing run-on sentence. Actually, in the Greek, it's, it's one long sentence full of just like effusive praise from the Apostle Paul. And here's what he says about what God is doing in Christ uh, for us as followers of Christ. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul says, We have been blessed by the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says the key is to understanding how that blessing works is that we are in Christ. This phrase, in Christ, in the Messiah, is a word that's used, I think, over a hundred times in the New Testament. He says, if you are in Christ, what he's speaking about here is our union with Christ. Like this happens as we are united by grace through faith with Jesus. We are, he says, redeemed or made right with God because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. What it means to be in Christ is that everything that's true of Jesus is now true of us. Everything that's true of Jesus is now true of you, now true of me. I mean, notice the blessings here that the Father bestows on those who are in Christ. We are chosen. We are not abandoned. We are holy and blameless, no longer unholy or full of blame or guilty. We are predestined. We are adopted sons. We are heirs. And all of this is to the praise of his glory. Everything that's true of Jesus now by faith through grace is true of me and you. Now, stop for a second uh, because there's a problem, right? Like, although these things are true of us objectively, the problem is that we don't often feel or think or live this way. I don't know about you, but I often don't feel like a beloved, chosen, predestined, adopted son who's an heir of the king, right? We confess and we mentally assent to these truths, but our daily reality is that we actually live as those who feel cursed. We feel abandoned. We feel unworthy. We feel ugly. We feel forgotten. Some of this comes through our sin and how it warps our minds and the lies that we tell ourselves and the ways that we live into those warped realities. And some of this comes through suffering, right? Like some of us from our childhood have been told, told you are unworthy, you are unlovable, you are ugly. And these things become imprints or scripts that form and shape our identity. And so we need God to transform us. We need these truths, these objective truths to progressively take root in deeper and deeper and deeper layers of our identity. David Benner, uh, who's a psychologist, says it like this. Christians affirm a foundation of identity that is absolutely unique in the marketplace of spiritualities. Whether we realize it or not, our being is grounded in God's love. Love is our identity and our calling. In order for our knowing of God's love to be truly transformational, it must become the basis of our identity. Our identity is who we experience ourselves to be, the I that each of us carries within. An identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to mind is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. The first thing that should come to mind is not that God is disappointed with us, but that he deeply loves us, even despite our sin and our unloveliness. And the way that that happens, he says, Paul says in this passage is through the Spirit. The Spirit, he says, is a deposit or a guarantee. 
You could call it a down payment. This word deposit is a legal and commercial word that was used to indicate a down payment securing a legal claim. What the Spirit of God does is reaches into our future, who we're becoming in Christ, this thing that's going to be eternally true of us, and he brings the present and the future into the present and begins to subjectively apply what is already objectively true about us. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in identity formation. It is to help us become who we really are in Christ, God's beloved sons and his beloved children. Henri Nouwen, one of my favorite spiritual writers, says it like this, Dear friend, being the beloved is the origin and the fulfillment of the life of the Spirit. From the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, we are faced with the call to become who we are. Becoming the beloved is the great spiritual journey we have to make. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He creates the context and the environment for us to grow into or to become who we already are in Christ. He gives us that ongoing assurance that what is true of Christ, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, is now also true of you and I. This is what the Bible calls adoption. Turn over one last place here to Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Here's what Here's how Paul explains it when he unpacks the adoptive work of the Holy Spirit. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, it's really important that we hang on to this, this adoption uh, language because Paul meant very, something very specific that any person who read the book of Romans would have understand, understood about the Roman world. In the ancient Roman world, adoption was a common practice among ruling classes as a means of strengthening family ties or ensuring the succession of uh, an estate for a wealthy family. So qualified male heirs would be identified if you didn't have a son that was, that was eligible. And they would identify someone usually healthy, distinguished as a leader, courageous in battle, virtuous, these kinds of things. And the parents of both families would agree. Money would be exchanged. Legal documents and ratifications would be secured. And the son would be transferred legally from one family to the other. Instantly, they would lose all of their rights of their biological family, and they would gain all the rights of a son and an heir of this wealthy family. Matter of fact, the five quote-unquote good emperors of Rome from AD 96 to 180 all adopted heirs as a means of transferring power and authority and wealth from one generation to the next. And so this concept of sonship and adoption is really important to Paul. And again, I don't, especially if you're a woman listening to this, I don't want you to be thrown off by the, the masculine pronouns and the idea of fatherhood and sonship. This is, this is not about sexism, okay? When the Bible says you are sons of God, just remember, God the Father is not gendered. He, he, he transcends masculine or fem, female stereotypes. The spirit is not gendered, right? Like, this is not about sexism. This is about the status conferred by adoption in the Greco-Roman world. What he's saying here is when we are adopted by the Spirit, we experience an upwardly mobile move, you could say, from worthlessness to dignity, 
from powerlessness to authority, from slavery to sonship and intimacy, from fear to love. We are cut off from the sins and suffering of our biological family, our past, and our future is now legally binding and secured by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have now an inheritance in our new family in Christ. God is our Father. Jesus is our Savior. The Spirit now dwells inside of us, and we are becoming what we were not and could not through our own attempts at achieving an identity for ourselves. And he uses this beautiful picture of just a family, a learning community, where we're learning what it means to be children of God. He he says, um, we are learning to cry, Abba, Father. This word Abba just means daddy or papa or poppy. Uh, I have four kids, and uh, when the kids were little and they first started talking, it was always a competition between my wife and I to see which kid would call um, us our names first, mama or daddy. And I don't know where I stand. I know that a couple of them said daddy first. And it's such a great feeling. There's no greater feeling than for the first time hearing your children say daddy or mommy and jumping up into your lap. Or, or as my kids used to do, they would put their hands out and they would say, daddy, hold you, hold you. And that meant pick me up, hold me, right? And, and he says the spirit works like that, teaching us what it means to cry out to God as our father, daddy, papa, poppy, hold you. This, this word to cry out means to shriek or to scream. And it's this involuntary, primal, emotional response to our father, just like our, our biological parents. Attachment means that we're learning to become aware of God in a way that transcends our rational and external capabilities. It's this intensely internal experience of the Spirit, witnessing with our spirit, you are my beloved sons and daughters. So sonship is all about adoption. Augustine says that God is in me deeper than I am in me, right? The Spirit, through wordless groans, Paul goes on to say, an intercessory prayer takes this identity, you are God's beloved, and he drives it into the core, into the innermost part of who we are. He doesn't obliterate our other identities, right? We don't cease to be ourselves, but he takes these other pseudo-identities or lesser identities, and he reorders them and reorients them, and he puts his identity at the core, and then it relativizes and reorders everything else. And this is both a moment and a process, right? Like there's a moment when we go from being outside of Christ and into Christ and into the family of God. But it's also a process. It's something that it takes a long time for us to live into, to learn to become the beloved, to live with that sense of identity of being a beloved child of God. It's kind of like when I became a father, right? 14 years ago, my son James just turned 14. It's hard to believe this past Sunday. And I remember when I first became a father, I went to the hospital, and they give you this baby, and then you like walk out, and I'm like, I can't believe that I'm allowed to take this baby. I like kept looking around for the police on the way home, like thinking somebody was going to pull me over because I'm a fraud. I, I, I'm, I'm like legally a father, objectively a father, but subjectively, I have no idea how to keep this baby alive through the night. That's why, thankfully, they give fathers mothers and children mothers as well. Uh, Or when we adopted our youngest daughter, right? We adopted our youngest daughter. We brought her home um, as our special, unique, precious daughter. She became a shield legally. But she's going to spend a lifetime learning and relearning what it means to live as a shield. All the rights and privileges were hers the moment she was legally declared a shield's. 
but she's still learning to process what it means to actually be a part of the Shields family for the rest of her life. That's, that's a part of the journey of adoption. That's a part of the journey of being a father or a mother. I love what J.F. Packer says, adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love, viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship, and he establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness and affection and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Justification, union with Christ is awesome. But he says to be a part of the family, to know that you're wanted, to know that you're worthy, to know that because you're in Christ, God is bringing about his great purposes for you. He's making you more yourself than you've ever been, making you more alive than you've ever been in Christ. He says, what a great privilege. I want to close with just a couple practical suggestions here on what it might look like for us to live into this uh, spirit reality, this, this spirit-given identity um, on a day-to-day basis. Because again, it sounds good, but like bring it down on the ground. What does it actually look like each day as we struggle to live into that identity? A couple of practical suggestions. The first thing I want to encourage you is to start each day with a beginner's mind. Assume that every day you wake up that you have spiritual amnesia, that you've forgotten that you are a dearly beloved son or daughter. We need lots of reminding as we live life. We just tend to forget. And so it's important for us to be curious, to press into the Spirit each day. As St. Anthony of the Desert once said, every morning I must say again to myself, today I start anew. The second thing I want to encourage you to try is listening prayer. This is just an exercise that I do each morning uh, that's been encouraged for thousands of years in the church where you wake up and you get in a silent place. Maybe you're in your car on the way to work or you get up before the kids are up or just find some quiet time, and you just listen to the voice of the Spirit. You root your identity in heaven, not on the earth, by listening to the words of affirmation from the Scripture. You, you find a Scripture passage, or maybe a poem, or maybe a, a writing or a quote from, uh, from another Christian, and you just sit with that and listen to the voice of the Father speaking His love. You are my beloved Son in whom I'm pleased. Maybe take Romans chapter 8 and just say, God, I know that I've been adopted into your family. I want to be led by your spirit. I am your beloved child in whom you're well pleased. Listen to that voice and dispel the lies that sometimes get us all uh, tangled up and off track. The third thing I want to encourage you to do is to practice gratitude, right? Pay attention to the ways the Spirit wants to remind you of His love. The Spirit is always present to us. He's always present and working and speaking, but sometimes we are not present to Him. We don't look for the ways that He may be speaking to us in a still, small, quiet voice. If you remember the story of Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, uh, this big earthquake comes through and and a tornado or a whirlwind comes through, and the voice wasn't in these big, spectacular things. It was just in in the quiet, in the stillness. And sometimes God speaks to us in subtle ways through our spouse. Maybe he wants to speak to you through your children, even your babies, right? Like he wants to speak to you through beauty and creation and nature or through your coworkers on a Zoom call or the poor that you encounter as you travel around the city through music, like all kinds of ways the Spirit wants us. But just pay attention to those ways that God is seeking to remind you 
that you are blessed, you are loved, you are chosen, you are predestined, you are the one in whom God takes delight. And just be grateful, God, God, thank you for that blessing, thank you for that reminder. It's easy for us to miss those opportunities to live in gratitude and choose to live in cynicism. The last thing is to take the opportunity to to take the blessing that God's given you and bless others, right? You are the chosen one. You are the beloved. And other people need to hear that as well. They need to, out of the overflow of your own experience, for you to say, hey, you know what? I see God's blessing in your life, and here's how I see this blessing. It may be a card or a text or a phone call or just an opportunity to speak words of blessing. I mean, everybody longs to be blessed, right? Like we, again, live feeling so cursed, and the world is going to curse us, but we want to be blessed. And so maybe just stop in to take an opportunity to say, hey, I see you. And I want, to know, I want you to know I see you becoming the beloved of God. And here's what I see. And I just want to take this opportunity to bless you. These are just some ways that we can learn to, as a community, become a community that is living in the reality that we are God's beloved children. Let's take a moment to pray and ask the Spirit to make that real to us as a community this week. Father, we do just ask for your blessing. We ask for spirit that you would transform our identity. Help us to root our identity in heaven, not on earth. Spirit, would you take what's true of Christ and and bring that into our hearts? Would you remind us as you cry out and as you pray for us and when you witness to our spirits that we are your beloved children in whom you are well pleased? God, make that a reality. Help us to internalize that truth this week and to speak that truth to those that you've placed around us. And God, make us a community full of the Spirit, having our identities transformed day by day as we behold you and become more like you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.